0: It is so good to be with you again and see all your friendly faces. Um, Well, my daughter Emma Ruth turned two recently, and so we decided it was the perfect opportunity for a family photo shoot. I booked a photographer, I researched fall color palettes for photo shoots, I got coordinating outfits, and then we had to reschedule because um, a mosquito bit her and her face swelled up. So... It is finally day two, round two, and I have really high expectations for how the photo shoot is gonna go. And you all know where this is going, don't you? (laughs) Okay, so we get out of the car, and the first thing I notice is that a devil mosquito in the car bit her all over her face and arms, and she's swelling up again. So we're just repeating why we canceled before. And then the photographer goes, Tiffany, you're missing an earring. Well, the back had fallen off, so my statement earrings that pulled the whole outfit together, gone. Now I just look mismatched. And then Emma Ruth looks at me and goes, I know like camera. And that means she would not hold still. She would not stop sucking her thumb. Um, She refused to be held and, in general, just kind of scowled the whole time. So I'm like, will you behave if I put you down? "Mm Mm-hmm. So I put her down, and she runs into the forest. And so I'm running after her, trying to keep my perfectly white, new shoes clean. And, well, that didn't work. We're standing there, and Jason has the audacity to go, is this what you wanted? Are you enjoying this? And <laughs> and in, and he wasn't being sarcastic. He was genuinely asking. He's like, did we get all the poses you wanted? And in between me, smiling for the photographer and whispering death threats to Emma Ruth and Jason under my breath, I'm like, you're moving. Yeah. So the whole thing is a disaster, right? I'm just angry, I'm frustrated, nothing went according to plan. And so I'm trying to redeem the situation afterwards and I tell the photographer, thank you so much for your patience. I'm sorry, Emma Ruth and I lost our cool. And she goes, Tiffany, that's okay. I have little ones, I understand. I think you will love these photos because they will perfectly capture this season of life. And in that moment, I just wanted to scream, that's not what I wanted. (laughs) I didn't want all of the toddler tantrums. I wanted the toddler kisses. I wanted the Instagram beauty. I wanted us to look good. Now, never mind that we don't actually look this way or act this way. This is the picture I had created in my mind. And as you can tell, I was going to great lengths to achieve it. And haven't we all been there? Often, it is our deepest desires and our longings that become these images, these stories in our heads of what we hope for for ourselves and our loved ones. So what about you? What is the story that you are hoping for today? What is that Instagram image that if it just came true, you'd love to pop on social media and share it with others? You know, as we'll see in today's story in Genesis 27, Isaac's family also had a dream of how they thought life should play out, and they were going to great lengths, as you'll see, to achieve that. And let's be honest, the story gets messy, and yet through it all we will see that God remains faithful even when we are faithless, because God is committed to his people and his plan no matter what. So today we are in Genesis chapters 27 through 28, and our passage begins with Isaac's desire to bless his oldest son, Esau. So look with me at Genesis 27, beginning in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were weak so that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. Here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like, and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look! I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Now, chapter 27 reads like an episode of Survivor. And if you haven't watched it yet, it's been going on 20 years, so this is no spoiler alert. There are alliances formed, then alliances are broken, individuals compete for rewards, and eventually someone gets um, cast off the island, or in this case, exiled from their homeland. So, what were those coveted rewards that Esau and Jacob had been competing for since birth? Two things birthright and blessing, and the terms are closely related, but they're not the same. You see, in the ancient world, the birthright specified existing property and wealth that passed from one generation, kind of like today we might make wills and will this house or this bank account to a child. However, the blessing focused on future wealth, on future posterity, and this was most profoundly seen in God's covenant blessings and according to social custom esau as isaac's oldest son should have received both the birthright and the blessing yet god had revealed to rebecca in genesis 25:23 two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated one people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger And we all read this week how in Genesis uh, chapter 25, Esau showed his low regard for his birthright and traded it for a simple bowl of stew. And now in chapter 27, we find the entire family caught up in this competition for Isaac's blessing. Remember how I said each of the four characters had a specific vision for how they thought life should go? Let's listen in and see if their plans turned out. So first, Isaac. Isaac's greatest desire was for his oldest and favorite son, Esau, to be the recipient of God's blessing. Now, in those days, when patriarchs knew their death was approaching, they were supposed to call all of their sons to them and in a public ceremony to bless them each to some degree. Yet notice what Isaac does. He only summons Esau, and he intends to bless him in a private ceremony. Can you see the deception going on here? Everything Isaac is doing is done in secrecy in an attempt to thwart the prophecy that Esau would serve Jacob. And friends, let's be honest. If you are doing something in secret and it's not a surprise birthday party for someone, it probably has to do with sin and guilt. Because we don't hide good things. We bring good things out into the light and we celebrate them. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And in a very real sense, Isaac was in the dark, because he was both spiritually and physically blind. We know that he was spiritually blind because he lacked God's wisdom. He lacked obedience to God's word, and he eventually was deceived. Think about this. Isaac deliberately gave all of the blessing to one son because he wanted Esau to have all and Jacob to have none. And in great irony, the plan worked against him. When Esau came to get a blessing, Jacob had already given it, or Isaac had already given it away. And so he had nothing to give Esau. What Isaac most wanted to take from Jacob and give to Esau was eventually taken from them both. And so Esau and Isaac were left with nothing. Now let's look at Rebekah, the mother of this family. What she most wanted was for her youngest and her favorite son to receive the blessing. And so when she heard Isaac's plot to bestow the blessing on Esau, she came up with a counter plan. Ultimately, they were successful. Jacob did receive the blessing. But did you notice the steep cost that it cost Rebecca to do this? First, she promised that if Isaac found out and brought a curse down, she would take it upon herself. Also, did you notice her marriage was dominated by manipulation? She manipulated Isaac into blessing Jacob, and then she manipulated Isaac again into sending Jacob away. And just a little hint, as the marriage director here, that is not a great tool for your marriage. (laughs) Marriage does not include manipulation of others. And then finally, Rebecca ultimately wanted both sons to live. But by her actions, she alienated Esau, and then Jacob had to be exiled so he wouldn't be murdered. So in a very real sense, she lost both sons that day, and she decided to deceive Isaac. So I don't think we could say that Isaac or Rebecca achieved the visions they had worked for, but what about the twin boys? Did they get what they were working towards? Well, what they both wanted was the blessing of their father, Isaac. And I think we could easily say they also wanted the approval of their father. Both sons wanted to know that Isaac was proud of them. And if you're honest, perhaps affirmation from a parental figure or someone you look up to is something that you long to also hear. I love you. I am proud of you. I am honored that you carry our legacy on and will pass it to others. And in that regard, maybe you can relate to their competition for the blessing from their father. You know, from our study this week, we know that Jacob covered himself in goat skins, he wore Esau's clothes, and he brought his father his favorite meal. And while hesitant at first, Isaac eventually believed Jacob and gave him God's full blessing. And I think at this point it'd be easy to pity Esau, but remember he's not innocent here either. When he finds out the the blessing is stolen, he wants to murder his brother. This is a call back to Cain and Abel. And then when Esau came and begged Isaac for a blessing and there was nothing left, his father said, you will live by the sword. You and your family will survive by pillaging and warfare. And that is the very opposite of a blessing. That is an anti-blessing. That is almost a curse. And like his father, who he imaged, Esau lacked spiritual discernment and disobeyed God's word. He married not one, but two Canaanite wives who grieved his parents. And when Esau realized that Jacob had been sent away to find a wife from Rebekah's family, he thought, ah, oh, oh, okay, this is it. If I marry within the family, I'll finally have their approval. And when what I think is really sad is that he married the daughter of Ishmael, and Ishmael was the oldest son of Abraham, the son who had been cast out and not chosen for blessing. Esau just repeatedly did not understand God and his plan and what he was doing. So we've talked about Isaac, Rebecca, Esau. How did things turn out for Jacob? He's the child of blessing, right? Are things gonna go according to his vision? No. Remember, we got a hint from the very beginning. His name means he who grasps the heel, or he deceives. And in Jacob's grasping for the blessing, he intentionally deceived his father. He lied multiple times. And did you notice he even um, said that God provided the game for him? He used God's name to cover his deception. He is in deep territory here. Jacob took on the identity of his brother by wearing goatskins skins and Esau's clothes to cover up his deception. And again, this is a reference to our tendency to hide and to mask our sin and our guilt. And then Jacob ultimately had to flee when Esau found out that he had stolen his blessing. And here's the ironic truth, here's what I find most convicting Jacob was already going to receive the blessing since he was in utero, God already had given Jacob that blessing. Jacob didn't have to become anyone else or do anything to receive the blessing because it was already his. It was already in his hands. Yet in his grasping, in his overreaching, in his attempt to shape the narrative according to his desires, he caused a lot of trouble. He created family strife, He was alienated from his family, and he had to flee as a refugee from his homeland to go to a people and a place unknown to him. And at this point, you may be thinking, it kind of looks like all hope is lost. Where is God? Where is God's good plan to redeem the world? How could God possibly be working within this very messy family? And let's be honest, none of these people are moral heroes. When you hear about the mothers and the fathers of faith, when we teach our children and our grandchildren um, in Sunday school, we hold up these people like paragons of virtue, but they are not. They are liars and cheats. They fail big ways. They coerce and manipulate others. And they ultimately showed lack of faith in God because none of them were willing to lay down their image of what life should be like for the story that God was writing. And here's the beautiful truth. Situations like these are where God's glory is most evident and where we can most clearly see his kingdom work. Because God's good plans and purposes are not thwarted thwarted by deceit, false hairy identities, murderous threats, manipulative marriages, idolatry, polygamy, intense sibling rivalry, exile, or any other sin that you could throw out there. God brings light to the darkness. He is at work in broken people and broken places and broken stories. And that is good news because no matter what you do or do not do, God remains faithful. God is committed to his plan and his people. And so he continues to work through this messy family and he continues to work through us. We pick back up the story in Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, and he set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching into heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Then above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back the land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So to quickly recap, Jacob is sent to his uncle's family to avoid being murdered by his brother and to find a wife, kill two birds with one stone. It's a difficult journey of 550 miles, and it would have taken Jacob over a month to make this trip. But just a few days into his trek, about 50 miles north of where he started, Jacob encounters God. Notice where Jacob is. Behind him lays Beersheba, where Esau waits to kill him. And if you've read ahead, you know that ahead of him waits Laban, his uncle, who waits to exploit him. He is literally between a death camp and a hard labor camp. And it is at this point, the lowest point in his life, when it seems like both options are lose-lose and there can be no winning, it is in this exact moment that God chooses to reveal himself to Jacob personally in a dream. Look again with me at verse 13. God begins with, Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac, but I'm disappointed in you. Do you even know me? What? what no, that's not what your translation reads. <laughs> that is not what God says. He doesn't begin with a shameful review of Jacob's past and go through the litany of sins and the way that he and his family have failed. Instead, God presents an alternative future. In a literal dream, God interrupts the narrative that Jacob sees playing out. And he introduces a new and better story, a story that will ultimately redeem the entire world and result in God's blessing for his people. And this new vision was the entire world, but it was also personally for Jacob. You see, up until now, Jacob hadn't personally encountered God. It's likely that Abraham and Isaac taught him about God, but he hadn't personally heard from him or interacted with him. And for someone who coveted the blessing and approval of his father, can you imagine what it might have felt like for the God of his father and grandfather to speak words of promise and provision, and presence over him, instead of words of condemnation. And I think someone in the room needs to hear that story today. God, your father, is speaking to you. Perhaps your family's story is one of deep pain and brokenness, and you can't possibly see any light coming from so much darkness. Perhaps your personal narrative is so full of lies and secrecy and fear that you feel there is no hope. This is beyond redemption. Perhaps your personal story has been hijacked by the sins and manipulation of others and you are now left utterly alone. Wherever you find yourself today, God is speaking to you, not words of condemnation or reproach, but words of life, words of invitation. And he is saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sisters, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God will bring light to the darkness, and his good plans and purposes will prevail. Why? Because God is committed to his people and his plan, and that is a promise that we can bank on. Because if you are a believer, you are part of that plan and that promise for God to redeem all that is broken. You know, as we learned in our earlier lessons, God's promise to Abraham and his descendants is called the Abrahamic Covenant. And a covenant sounds like a big fancy word, but it's simply a promise to do something and a commitment to a relationship. Now, some covenants are unconditional, which means that it is binding and effective no matter what the other party does. For example, for those of you that are dog or cat lovers, you are committed to loving your fur baby no matter what they do or don't do. I love Teddy, our cockapoo, and that is simply because I've chosen to do so. He doesn't do anything to make himself lovable. I simply love him for who he is. It is on me to walk out that relationship. However, other covenants are conditional, which means both parties have certain responsibilities that they have to uphold for that relationship to be maintained. Jason, my husband, would say that Teddy violated their relationship when he ate the couch. And so Jason's love is conditional, and right now he does not love Teddy. Um, We have disagreements about that. Another example of a conditional covenant is working for a paycheck. You agree to work a certain number of hours and do a certain task in exchange for money. Both parties are responsible for upholding their end so that the um, end result and the relationship will be maintained. Now what do you think, is the Abrahamic covenant conditional or unconditional? It is unconditional. Because God chose Abraham and his descendants who would eventually be named the Israelites for the redemption of the world. And so in Genesis 28, verses 13 through 14, God restates his covenant with Abraham. And in effect, he says, I gave these promises to Abraham, your grandfather. I gave these promises to Isaac, your father. And now I give these promises to you, Isaac, because I choose you to be the recipient and the bearer of my blessings. And remember that although God honored the social and legal customs of the day where a father got to lay his hands on his son and bless him, it wasn't the father that ultimately caused the blessing. It was God. God chose Jacob to receive those blessings. And so God restates his covenant. I will bless you and your offspring. I will make you multiply. I will bring you back to this land and all nations on earth will be blessed through this offspring because Jesus would come from their lineage. So look with me at what God says next to Jacob in verse 15. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And don't forget, this is just the beginning of a very long and harrowing journey. And what Jacob didn't know is that it would be 20 years of hard labor before he would get to return to his homeland. But God knew. God knew what Jacob needed, God knew what lay ahead for Jacob. And so, with loving kindness, God provides encouragement and reassurance for Jacob right at the beginning so there can be no doubt when the hardships come, God was with me, God is with me, God will be with me. And so God gives Jacob a glimpse of the entire national redemptive story, but then he also narrows it in and gives specific encouragement to Jacob and a glimpse of his own future and how God intends to redeem Jacob's family narrative. God gives three personal promises to Jacob, I will be with you and I will never leave you. God promises to personally be with Jacob. Second, I will watch over you. God promises to preserve and protect Jacob. And he'll need it because he will be exploited. And then third, I will bring you back. God promises to bring Jacob back to his homeland. In other words, God will be with Jacob and he will bless him because God is committed to his plan and to his people and to his purposes, and that is an unconditional promise. I don't know about you, but I'd like to believe that if I had such a radical encounter with God, that I would be forever changed. I imagine I'd stand strong in my faith, I'd share the gospel with people in line at Target. I'd never doubt and I would take advantage of every opportunity to share the blessings I've been given with others. And yet think about the disciples. They ate, walked, talked, ministered with Jesus, and they still suffered doubts and fears and failures of faith and even denied uh, Jesus at points. They were confused about God's plan And so we might expect, while we might want or hope, that Jacob would have a complete 180, he doesn't. Not yet, at least. Jacob defaults right back to what he knows, and that is grasping, attempting, pulling for what he feels is beyond reach. And so look at how Jacob responds in verse 20 to these personal promises God has just made. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. For instance, does, does Jacob's response sound conditional or unconditional? Conditional. Notice the words if and then. If God heals me of cancer then I will praise him. If God provides me a new job, then I'll share my faith with all my coworkers. If God repairs the broken relationship with my child, then I'll never ask him for anything again. Or in my personal case, if God grants us another child, I will treasure her every moment of every day. And that's just not realistic. So if and then, these two words are words of bargain because they limit and they put restrictions and um, they confine the relationship between ourself and God. And so it begs the question, if God has extended unconditional love to us, and if as believers we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, why would we respond with conditional words that reject what God has so freely offered? Well, I think we have fear and self-preservation to thank for that struggle. I know I do. Isn't it hard to acknowledge that you're not in control? Isn't it humbling to admit your dependence upon God to provide and sustain you? I personally think it's a whole lot easier to practice like you get what you deserve, whether good or bad, because then the outcome is on you and it's in your control and in your hands. But sisters, that ultimately is not good news, and it will fail you, because without God's lavish mercy and grace, we would not be here today. It is only in Jesus, the prophesied offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we find the mercy, grace, and faithfulness that we have been longing for. We cast ourselves upon Jesus because he is the author of your story. And God is redeeming all that is broken and making it new. God says, I am with you. I will never leave you. And even if you can't see it now, I am at work in your life and in your story in ways that you could never imagine. Will you make conditions on the worship of your God like Jacob did? Will you only worship God when things are going well and according to that narrative you're holding up in your mind? Or will you worship God through it all, knowing that he is a faithful God who will do what he says he will do? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that when we are faithless, you are faithful. We thank you that your plan and your promises are not dependent upon us, but are based on you and your good character. And yet, Lord, you invite us to participate in that redemptive plan. And in so doing, we get a front seat to the miracles and the redemptive work that you are doing. Father, I pray that we would live lives of surrender and that when that fear and that doubt and that tendency to self-preserve and shape things according to our own vision, when those come, Lord, would you just remind us gently of your goodness and your faithfulness, of your mercy and of your grace, and that you are trustworthy and true. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation, a gift that is not of our own doing, but that is a gift of grace. May we boast in you alone and rejoice in you alone. And it is in your name that we pray, amen.